The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Brad. For those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm going to give the scripture reading this morning. Uh, we're going to be reading from Judges 7 this morning. If you want to open your Bibles, that's about the first quarter of the Bible. Uh, and uh, let's see, while we're opening there, if you wouldn't mind standing with me for the reading of the word. When we stand for the reading of the word, we're holding a reverence for the scriptures that God has spoken to us. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, when Moses received the Ten Commandments, uh, he came down after receiving those first written words and spoken words from God, and his face was glowing from the holiness of God that was in front of him and that he was in the presence of. And when Jesus came, he tore that curtain and that veil, and we can now stand and be in the presence of God in his holiness now. And so when we stand, we are showing reverence and respect for the word of the Lord that has come to us. So let's read uh, Judges 7, starting in verse 1. Jerubel, that is Gideon, And all the troops who were with him got up early and camped beside the spring of Harad. The camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them, or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, I have saved myself. Now announce to the troops, Whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 of the troops turned back, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many troops. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. If I say to you, this one can go with you, he can go. But if I say about anyone, this one cannot go with you, he cannot go. So he brought down the troops down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, separate everyone who laps water with his tongue like a dog. Do the same with everyone who kneels to drink. The number of those who lapped with their hands to their mouths was 300 men and all the rest of the troops knelt to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with 300 men who lapped and hands the Midianites over to you, but everyone else is to go home. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. I just got two things for you really quick, and then we are going to watch a testimony video. But speaking of that testimony video, I need you to know that there are uh, some themes in these testimonies in the next few weeks that might be more adult than uh, children friendly. And so if you have a child in the room, you may uh, want to consider either Uh, It's up to you being prepared for conversations that may come out of the testimony videos or stepping out of the room. We just wanted to make sure that you had the opportunity to make that choice as a parent yourself. So uh, nothing crazy, but again, we just want to give you as a parent the opportunity to do that. The second thing is we are a family here. Uh, We we try to say that as much as we can, but the reality is is that family means that uh, that we're going to be broken and dysfunctional, that there's going to be things happening, but it also means that we just care for each other like family. And so if you are here and there is a baby crying, right? If you had a baby crying in your living room, you wouldn't kick out your niece or nephew. You would, you'd be like, that's awesome. Praise God. Or you'd ask mom, can I help? Right? And so in our family here, we want to make sure that we, if a baby cries, it's okay. 
it's, it's safe here to be all right to have noise and babies crying because we're just stoked that God gives us family. Is that good? We okay with that? All right, so let's just make sure we have that culture. Would you guys take a look at this video with me? By grace, we are saved. That right there is the few words that changed my life. When I was growing up, I was uh, raised Catholic. My parents taught me how to be a good person. Ken Castellanos. They took me to church every week. I was an altar boy, went to a Catholic school. They did everything that they needed to, to actually be great parents. I loved my mother and father, but then I fell into the wrong crowd. By the time I was 13, we were doing drugs or even drinking. My parents, to their knowledge, were doing a great job. I was going to school, getting somewhat bad grades. But then when I got into high school, it was just even worse. Playing football, but every weekend, drinking, doing drugs. Growing up in, in Hispanic culture, my family would practice this form of religion called Santeria. And Santeria is synchronistic worship of saints and African gods. I would go to places and they would sacrifice chickens to get what they wanted. It was a very self-centered religion. When I was a kid living in New Jersey, we lived in an older house. I would see some demonic activity there. I would tell the story to people and go, hey, I don't care if you believe in ghosts or not, but this is what happened to me when I was a kid, and there's ghosts. It was very, uh, uh, very scary. So my aunt came over and did some seance. I heard different voices, different languages come out of her. It was something that was very, very uh, traumatic in my life. Still kind of gives me a little bit of an uncomfortable feeling. Those demons and those ghosts that I was seeing stopped. I stopped seeing them. But that caused me to actually like fall deeper in with this santeria, uh, this worship. Going into my 20s, it was just a continuous drug-induced week. Alcohol, addicted to pornography, and I also sold drugs. It, it was just something that I couldn't get out of. I was just living my life, doing me or you do you. I was doing my thing. In the midst of that, I met my now wife. Two broken people coming together, kind of just latched onto each other. I didn't know that God was using her also to pull me out of this damaging lifestyle. We both started going out and partying together and doing all these drugs and, and drinking. I had my son that I had when I was 21. At this time he was seven. I was in and out of his life because of my drug addiction. She had two kids from a previous marriage. We were just coexisting and living together. We are trying to kind of bring our life together. So we started visiting churches. We went to the, you know, these big, beautiful Catholic churches. It was still leaving us empty. I was working with a church planner. He was my manager. He was always talking to me about, yeah, I'm planting this church. I didn't even know what that meant. At the same time that he was inviting me and we were talking about biblical things, my wife was actually being talked to by a pastor in her job. I told my fiance, let's just go to this guy's church. We get there and he's preaching through Ephesians chapter two verses one through nine by grace we are saved by grace we are saved that right there is the few words that changed my life the spirit just pierced my heart and just broke me we went from god being this judge to god being this merciful loving redeemer our friends started you're acting different we didn't fit in anymore. We went on our first mission trip a few years later. After we got baptized, me and my wife were both baptized in the same day. I was baptized by the church planning pastor that invited me, that is still a great friend to me today. And um, 
is just, I don't understand still why God is, has chosen me uh, to be his servant, but uh, I'm here. I'm here, and I'll go anywhere for him. blast. If you haven't got to meet them, you'll see them running around. Ken's in the back right now, uh, usually hustling, trying to figure out all the facility stuff around here. Ken is one of our um, church planning residents, so Ken is in training over this year to, uh, to, to make sure that he's ready to go plant a church, and so we are excited. At the end of this year, he should begin planning and prepping, and so uh, if you don't know, we are a church planting church. It's one of the things that we do. Uh, by the way, my name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. We're excited that you... Okay, thank you. Thank you. We're excited that you are here. Um, this is our Burbank location. We also are in the midst of planting a Granada Hills location, and we will continue to do that because our heart, our vision is that every neighborhood in the valley would have a church that knows, loves, and interacts with its neighbors. That we would be a church that cares so much about our community that we can change our community through the way that we love and interact with them. And so to do that, we have to continue to plant churches, to raise up church planters and leaders, and then build relationships and work with other churches and other entities that are doing the same thing. And so we're excited about that. We say it like this, Story City exists to glorify God by leading communities into healthy relationships with Jesus and others. That is the crux, the the heart of everything that we are about. Let's um, just stop for a moment and spend some time in prayer. Um, I think there is no other more important thing to get us started this morning, and so Uh, Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, this morning, we come before you and thank you that you have placed us in the heart of Burbank. We thank you that you have placed us in the midst of the industry. We thank you for the industry. Lord, we love the industry. When your people were exiled to Babylon, you told them to love the city, to pray for the city, to seek the welfare of the city, to to, to engage with it. And so we ask that you would help us to love the industry, to seek the welfare of the industry, to engage with the industry, that we wouldn't be afraid, but that we'd be a people who love you by loving it. We thank you that you have raised up organizations like the Greenhouse, like Master Media, like the Hollywood Prayer Network, and others who are working so hard to see Christians actually engage in culture like you have called us to, to build a healthy, godly culture, to be uh, create safe spaces for people to follow you and love you, uh, to, to fully engage without compromising who they are, and yet to have an impact because your name and your presence impacts everything that you touch. So would you help us to be a people who, again, love, engage, serve, seek the welfare of the industry, help us to find ways to bring you into these cultures Lord, to do it in ways that seeks your glory and not our own. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we are continuing our series, The Living Story, What's Yours? By looking at a man named Gideon. Now, some of you guys who have been Christians for a long time uh, might, it's, it's not Gideon. Uh, that's what I was raised to, but as I'm working really hard on these correct pronunciations. It's Gideon. So I might slip up while I'm talking, but this is the story of Gidon, and we're going to talk about how God miraculously rescues Israel, how God is still fighting our battles today, uh, but not usually in the ways that we want, and then how we don't have to be qualified for God to use us 
for great things. Now, Gedon was one of the judges of Israel. This is um, this word judge can be translated as governor, so it's more it's less like a, a person who settles court cases and more like a person who helps um, govern the nation or govern the people. The judges were people who were between the death of Moses and Joshua and uh, before the time of the kings. There was these series of judges. Now, God had told them after he gave them the promised land that, Israel, you're going to fall away. You're not going to listen to me. You're going to start serving other gods. This is why he told them, don't leave these nations in your land because they're going to trip you up. And sure enough, Israel left the people in the land. They uh, didn't obey God. And so they end up start serving these other gods. When this happens, God says, okay, I'm going to let these other nations come and rule over you, and hopefully that will remind you that you were under my protection, that I'm the one that provides for you. And so they would go through these periods where they would be serving God, they would forget about him, they would go serve other gods, God would allow them to be overtaken, they would uh, be, exist in misery for a certain number of years, 7 to 17, 18 years. They would go, oh yeah, we forgot about God. They would repeat themselves, Lord God, you know, forgive us. God would rescue them. He'd raise up a judge to rescue them. Things would go well for a while, and they'd go right back into that same pattern. And so this is where we find ourselves in the story today. The people of Israel have turned their hearts away from the Lord. They're serving the other gods. They've turned away from Yahweh, and they're doing whatever they want. Now, several nations have been oppressing them for a period of about seven years at this point. And it gets so bad that they're actually hiding in caves They are growing and harvesting crops in secret because every time these other nations would see that they were growing food, they would actually come in and wipe out all of their food, come and invade. And so the the people of Israel were really, really struggling uh, to even exist at this point. When the invading armies get them to this place where they're so poverty-stricken, they have nothing else, the people of Israel finally go, okay, God, we, we give up. We want to do things your way again. And God raises out a judge, this man named Gedon, And tells them that God will deliver the nation from these massive oppressing armies through Gedon. So let's pick up the story in the book of Judges, chapter 7, verses 1 to 12. And we're going to reiterate a little bit of what Brad read this morning and we'll continue on. Jerubbabel, that is Gedon, and all the troops who were with him, got up early and camped beside the spring of Harad. The camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gedon, you have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them, or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, I saved myself. Now announce to the troops, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 of the troops turned back, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gedon, there are still too many troops. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. If I say to you, this one can go with you, he can go. But if I say about anyone, this one cannot go with you, he cannot go. So he brought the troops down to the water, and the Lord said to Gedon, Separate everyone who laps water with his tongue like a dog. Do the same with everyone who kneels to drink. The number of those that laughed with their hands to their mouths was 300 men, and all of the rest of the troops knelt to drink water. The Lord said to Gedon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and hand the Midianites over to you. But everyone else is to go home. So Gedon sent all the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 troops who took the provisions and their ram's horns. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That night, the Lord said to him, Get up and attack the camp, for I have handed it over to you. But if you are afraid to attack the camp, go down with Purah, your servant. Listen to what they say, and then you will be encouraged to attack the camp. 
So he went down with Perah, his servant, to the outpost of the troops who were in the camp. Now the Midianites, Amechalites, and all the people of the east had settled down in the valley like a swarm of locusts, and their camels were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. Now I want you to put yourself in this moment, right? You are Gidon, and you are looking over the, the hill into this valley. And verse 12 says, The Midianites, Amechalites, and all the people of the east had settled down in the valley like a swarm of locusts, and their camels were as innumerable as a sand on the seashore. That is a lot of people. <laughs> that is a lot of people. And God is whittling down the people that he's allowed to bring with them. In fact, it says later in Judges that Gedon's pursuing just two of the kings that came against him. And there's still 15,000 men left. The Bible records that that army had already lost 120,000 from just one part of it. I mean, imagine Gedon standing there looking at this massive army... And then, like, turning around and looking at his 32,000. It must have already felt like it was an impossible task for him. But what does God say? Verse 2, the Lord said to Gidon, you have too many troops. You have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them. And then he gives a reason why, or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, I saved myself. I mean, this is fascinating, right? If you look at the beginning of the story, um, Gidon, the couple chapters before, Gidon actually says, God, I'm not even qualified to do this. I can't do this. I can't win this battle. This is impossible. He knows he's not capable of a military victory. The odds are definitely not in his favor. But God knows the hearts of the Israelites are quick to turn against him. And so he says, look, I'm going to do this, but you can't have thought it was by yourself. You can't have believed that you were capable of doing this on your own. This brings us to our first observation today. If you're taking notes, the first observation for us is that we need to trust God to fight our battles. We need to trust God to fight our battles. Now, if I was Gidon, I'd be looking at this and being like, what are you talking about, Willis? <laughs> like, have you, what do you mean too many people? The, 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 it's like a, a moving seashore down there. I mean, that's like the I-5 South on Labor Day weekend, right? Like, that is a lot of people at once. What is God thinking? But the point of all of this is not just that God would rescue them, but God is continually reminding them of his character, of who he is and how he works. He loves them and he wants a relationship with them. And he wants them to come to this place where he's not just this rescuer who comes in at the last minute, but he's someone that they can trust as their protector, as their provider. A number of years ago, I was in ministry and somebody in my ministry betrayed me. They were really close. And um, while both of us were at fault in this conflict, they told a story that wasn't true. They, they, they lied and made up a, 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 an event that happened that really had nothing to do with what was actually the conflict. And uh, I mean, their whole story is blatantly false. The next thing I know, this thing's out of control. And people were blaming me for stuff that not only did I not do, but no one even came to me and asked my side of the story. You guys know what I'm talking about? You've been through this before? It's a kind of conflict that that's just brings this chest-crushing angst. This nausea that, that makes you feel like you can't eat. It just, it just makes you sick. It's a kind of conflict that makes you question your own soul. Yes, it and what was God's response to me when I went to him and I was crying out, God, help me. He said, don't defend yourself. I will be your defender. And I'm like, what? What? Like, okay, I'll try that. And so what happened? Everything worked out perfectly. No. 
What happened was things got worse. And I'm like, God, you're going you're gonna to jump in here anytime. Like, like this would be a good time. No? Okay, let's go to another person, right? No, you're not going to jump in now. And so I just got to this place where I was like, I can't stand it anymore. And so I jumped in and I started defending myself. In fact, before I knew it, I got to this place where I was actually on the offensive trying to discredit this person before anybody could believe anything about them. You know what happened? My actions in defending myself actually gave credence to that person's lies. It made it seem like in me defending myself, I was actually doing the very things that they were accusing me of, and it did not end well. More recently, I had a close friend who was a gaslighter. If you don't know, a gaslighter is somebody who, no matter what you do, they make, they make it feel like it's your fault. Uh, they could completely harm you with nothing that is your responsibility, and they would turn the entire thing against you and make it seem like you're the one that's going crazy uh, because you are the one that did it. And so this friend's a gaslighter. I was aware of it towards others, but I, was, I thought that we were close enough to avoid it. But at some point, I, uh, I um, invoked his ire. And uh, in this case, though, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I had no responsibility in this. I, I was not at fault in this case at all. There was nothing that I was doing that was leading us to this uh, against him or anybody else. But I found out he was saying incredibly wild things about my motives, my behaviors, all of it behind my back. And so I confronted him in, in love. Not always good at doing that, but I confronted him in love, and uh, he blamed me for the whole thing, and then started telling everybody else that I was the reason. That, I mean, he was just, again, he was on the offensive, and once again, I found myself before the Lord with this same chest-crushing angst. I mean, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. All I could think about was how I was going to get revenge, the smart aleck things I could say to him, the ways I could tell people, like, hey, just look at this, and I would show people, and it was like revenge on my mind all the time, not, not like to harm him, but to humiliate him. People believed him more and more, though. And the Lord kept telling me to just keep my mouth shut and to let the Lord be my defender. And I was like, God, I don't know if I can do this again. And sure enough, things got worse and worse and worse. He had me fired from some volunteer leadership positions. He turned to close friends against me. Even people outside of our circle started coming up and counseling me on my actions and what I needed to do different. And I'm like, you guys have no idea. What's going on? So I had to sit back and watch while my reputation was damaged. My position of leadership was stripped away. Again, I couldn't sleep. I had trouble eating. And over and over again, God just kept telling me, keep my mouth shut. And so I did. I never spoke evil of him. I shrugged off all my natural instincts to beat him. Took a bit of grace. Um, But the whole thing lasted way longer than I could have imagined. I kept thinking, God's going to step in now. God's going to step in now. And in the meantime, over and over, things just kept getting worse and worse and worse. But you know what happened? At some point, all of the people started talking about how they had been gaslit by this guy. And everybody else went, wait, you too? You too? And suddenly this whole house of cards came down. And they thought, because the way he made them feel, that they were the only ones that had been treated this way. And, and then he had used their relationships. He had something over everybody because basically he's like, if you don't admit this is your fault, basically I'm going to tell everybody you did this. And he would just discredit everybody so everybody felt like that was the case. When they all started talking, they realized that they had all believed lies about each other, but none of it was true. At some point, they exposed his lies. And guess what? They saw through everything. And God revealed to them that all the stuff that they had seen and believed was actually not true, including the accusations against me. 
They actually came back as a group and apologized to me for what they said, didn't believed about me. It was amazing. And I couldn't believe how different the outcome of this conflict was compared to the conflict that I had before. But the most beautiful thing about it was when I actually kept my mouth shut, what God did through that. The comments I heard over and over again at the end, not in the middle of it. The middle of it was horrible. At the end, they said, you know what? Now that we see what you put up with, now that we see what you actually did, they said, you just taught us how to love people well. You just taught us what it meant to have healthy conflict. You just showed us that you were humble, that you still engaged, that you love people, that you were kind in the midst of this. We can't believe how poorly we treated you and this guy treated you, and yet you were still gracious and loving no matter what happened. We see that you were being godly, and everything that you just, just, just did pointed us to Jesus. That was amazing. Because it was clearly nothing that I did on my own. God used that conflict, and what he did was he taught them what it meant to be godly in the midst of a horrible circumstance. I didn't do that. God did it, and God got the glory, and that's what God wanted out of that conflict. Plus, I learned a lot more how not to do what I did the first time. But I want you to notice something about this. God didn't rescue me from the conflict itself. God didn't rescue me from the conflict itself. You know what he did rescue me from? He rescued me from trying to save myself. He rescued me from my unbelief and distrust in him. He rescued me from having to have it all figured out. And this is exactly why God tells Gidon there are too many people. It's because he wants him to see that God is the rescuer. God is the provider. God is the one that accomplishes the victory. And he rescues them out of his love and his faithfulness, his goodness. And so God tells Gidon that 32,000 men are too many. Gidon must have freaked out. Can you imagine? He makes his first announcement. He's like, all right, anybody that's scared, you guys can bail, go home. And 22,000 take off. I'd be like, okay, God, that's too much. Like, (laughs) calm down. I didn't, what? 22,000 of y'all are scared? Like, that is a massive amount. Most of your army just left. There's 10,000. But God doesn't leave it there. 10,000 are left, and Gidon's like sweating at this point, right? Like, oh man, this is already going to be tough. There's a living seashore down there. And all I got is 10,000 people, and God's like, yeah, they're innumerable, but 300 should about do it. That's, that's good. Let's do that. In our own lives, we so often look at the things that face us, and we go, how could I possibly overcome this? How could I possibly overcome this? We can't imagine victory and we doubt God. But see, God isn't overwhelmed or challenged by our circumstances. It's not like God says, oh, myself. (laughs) How did I get you into this? How did you get into this mess? In all the years and the billions of people I've led, I've never seen anybody get stuck like this before. You are the first one. But just like the Israelites, when God doesn't come through for us, we so often, uh, we're, we're quick to give credit to our, uh, when God does come through for us, we're so often quick to either give credit to ourselves. We're like, oh yeah, yeah, look what I did. Or we remember God for a brief period of time and then we forget and we act like that crisis never happened. We sort of move on like, yesterday this was the biggest thing in my life. God rescues us and today we're like, yeah, okay, whatever, it was no big deal. We forget that God is the one with the strength and the power. He is our rescuer. Somehow we, we just sort of, it just goes away. I think this is exactly why God chose Gidon to lead this army of 300 guys. Because Gidon was nobody important. He wasn't particularly qualified. He, didn't, he wasn't 
especially gifted. He's just obedient. If you're taking notes today, this is our second observation for the day. That God uses our obedience over our resume. God uses our obedience over our resume. Before this battle, Gedon is approached by God, and and, and God says, I'm going to use you as a judge over Israel. And and Gedon actually tries to get out of it. He makes a ton of excuses. Take a look with me in chapter 6, verses 11 to 16. It says, the angel of the Lord came. By the way, when it uses angel of the Lord like that, it's usually a pre-incarnate Jesus. So it's a Christophany, meaning appearance of Jesus before he's incarnate, before he puts on human nature in addition to his God nature. It says, the angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite. His son Gedon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Gedon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? They said, Hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. The Lord turned to him. This is why we know that it was the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus, because it's the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. He said to him, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the youngest in my father's family. God responds to him, but I will be with you, the Lord said to him. You will strike down Midian as if it were one man. I love verse 14 here. I love it. It's where God tells him, go in the strength you have. You don't need anything else but me and what I've already given you. But Gideon still doesn't get it. He's like, God, how am I going to defeat this? And God's like, okay, um, I'm the one sending you, right? I'm the one telling you the battle is going to be won. I'm the one that actually is going to fight your battle. See, God wants to use each one of us. God has chosen to use his people, his church, to accomplish his will. And I don't know about you, but I often feel unqualified for this. I'm sure it's only me. But God's answer to us is the same as Gideon. I'm the one sending you. I'm the one that's going to be fighting the battle. I am with you. God tells the prophet Zechariah in chapter 4, verse 6, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. This is the heart of the message that God is teaching the people of Israel. Trust in me. I am faithful and loving and I will rescue you. See, because God's promises are not based on our actions, God will still be faithful and loving and will still rescue us because it's on who he is, not who we are. But he does ask us to respond to him, to respond to his faithfulness, to respond to his goodness by turning our hearts back to him. And so we don't have to have the qualifications or the resources to accomplish what God wants. We don't have to be good enough. We don't have to be holy enough. We simply need to be willing to be obedient. See, God is faithful to fulfill his promises and bring salvation. Take a look at what happened to the end of the story here with Gedon. 7, 16 to 21 says, Then he divided the 300 men into three companies and gave each, man, each of the men a ram's horn in one hand and an empty pitcher with a torch inside it on the other hand. Watch me, he said to them, and do what I do. When I come to the outpost of the camp, do as I do. When I and everyone with me blow our ram's horns, you are also to blow your ram horns all around the camp. Then you will say, for the Lord and for Gidon. Gidon and the 300 men who were with him went to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch after the sentries had been stationed. 
They blew their ram's horns and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. The three companies blew their ram's horns and shattered their pitchers. They held their torches in their left hands and their ram's horns to blow in their right hands. And they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gidon. Each Israelite took his position around the camp and the entire Midianite army began to run and they cried out as they fled. The Bible goes on to say the entire opposing army turns against itself. They begin slaughtering each other as they flee. And so here are just 300 men who rout an army so large that it seems like sand on a seashore. But do you guys remember what was in their hands? Verse 20, the three companies blew their ram's horns and shattered their pitchers. They held their torches in their left hands and their ram's horns in their right hands, and they shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gidon. Fam, in their moment of victory, these 300 don't even have a sword in their hands. This is what the Bible means when it says the battle belongs to the Lord. Over and over God rescues his people in miraculous ways, ways that seem absolutely impossible and are, except for God. We need to give him both the credit and the thanks for all that he's done. But most importantly, we need to give him ourselves. Richard Foster says this, today the heart of God is an open wound of love. He aches over our distance and our preoccupation. He mourns that we do not draw near to him. He grieves that we have forgotten him. He weeps over our obsession with muchness and manyness. He longs for our presence. What battle do you need the Lord to fight for you today? Instead of working harder to fix it, instead of trying to accomplish the victory of your own, let's start by drawing near to him. To ask him to help us to want him and his ways. To simply be present with him and watch as he delivers us. Let's pray. Lord, you are so faithful. You are so good. You are incredible. I thank you that you are a God who pursues us. That we don't have to be good enough. We don't have to be holy enough. We don't have to be righteous enough that simply we don't even have to have enough faith Lord your word says that you even give us the faith that we need to believe in you so Lord for those of us who are facing battles even the ones that maybe we can see a way out of I pray that we would let those ways go that we would surrender to you and say God fight this battle for me show me how to trust in you to believe in you that you will accomplish this victory for me Lord, we believe, help us in our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.